And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. There's, there's gremlins, there's gremlins in the station, but that's okay. We are dealing with said gremlins in the station. Hello, everyone. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here in the studio at World Headquarters. And we have a guest today. Mr. Rick Stacy joins us. Hello, sir. I'm glad to be here. How are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Well, How so. are those gremlins, that, as a matter of fact? Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you kicked them out by now. <laughs> <laughs> There, there's gremlin, gremlins, and they were foul afoot. Oh my goodness! I and, well, and and like we were talking about before before we went on the air, I we deal with gremlins about three or four days a week here. Oh my! Um, oh my! Just because of stuff. I mean, the the computer that I use as my main main workstation is the what did we say? Twelve, thirteen years old. Wow. And wow. so it's one of those where it's like, okay, come on, you can do this one more day, one more day, one more day. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, there we are. So those of you who are watching live, welcome. Uh, we do have the live chat open. If this were a, a, a radio talk show, this is where I would pitch the, the 800 number, but we don't have an 800 number. Uh, but we do because have. We can't, aff- we can't afford a telephone at this that's, place. That's right. Well, and Call, we actually callers don't call in. We actually looked into that at one point. There's a there's a website called Live 365, and we actually thought about doing a a, a radio program online. And there's a there's some software that will let you do uh, call screening and 800 number stuff and all of that and manage you know like like a real talk show type of thing and. You know, it's it's money and it's manpower and it's you know it's all all it's of the things we don't we have. Don't yeah. have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert and uh, Sci-Fi Snob in the chat, welcome. Uh, and yes, it is time to upgrade. We do have I do have a new tower. I have not switched to the new tower yet because uh, momentum and um, the thing the thing what I'm resistant to is is basically kind of. If I if I switch, I'm going to miss something that I'm going to need, and you know it's one of those things where I'm just like, well, okay, I'm going to have to do it eventually. So, called burning your bridges behind you. Yeah, yeah, that's or exactly. Your, or your britches behind you. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully not my britches. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and well, because you know the whole pants on fire thing conjures up no. other other uh, other scenarios. So. There you go. That's um, great. Anyway, so anyhow, yeah, and and that's a good idea. You know, you could run both. I've got I've got more than one tower here. We've just got to figure out the best uh, the best rig because uh, what I've got here has a lot of USB ports because I have a lot of external hard drives. So you know, it's it's, it's just figuring out the configuration and making sure that that you don't miss anything. So anyway, all that to say, Rick Stacy is here. Hey, and uh, he is uh, an artist, he is a poet, he is a performer, and general raconteur, sometimes gentleman, and we're happy to have him uh, here. On the, on the, I'm, I'm often a gentleman, <laughs> and, sel- and seldom a cab. So. Well, that's, that's, that, is, uh, that is a good, a, a good uh, description right there. So, um, oh, Snob's offering to build us a tower and send it by email. It'll it'll miss the sticker on the on the way. They'll they'll pass yep. each other. Yep. So Rick, let me uh, let me get into this a little bit. And and I know we had talked about uh, you know you've got a new book coming out. You've got right. uh, some other stuff that you're working on. But I want to do a little bit of a setup just in case people are not familiar with you or your work. Yes, you do have a background in art, uh, DC yes. Comics, uh, Marvel Comics. Uh, do, you, do you do time at Image? As well, did you do anything? No, over no, image? no image. Uh, DC Comics, Marvel Comics, now Comics with Twilight Zone with Len Wein, and then Green Hornet, and gosh, uh, Charlton Comics, and other ones. I have to go check my uh, my, my bio myself because I don't know, but I've been in <laughs> comics since uh, 
since I was old enough to uh, uh, pursue that. At the same time, I've been in graphic arts as a corporate art director and senior director of uh, creative and marketing companies for some Fortune 500 companies. And for all those folks out there that say, corporate, ew, hey, they paid for the house. <laughs> and they allowed me to do comics because if I did just comics on their own, I would have starved to death. Uh, and I taught comics and cartooning and sequential storytelling for years and years and years at the Kansas City Art Institute and Shawnee Mission School District and uh, the Westport School of Art. And I, I give individual classes too. So that's that's been the bundle of all the things I've cared to do, pencil uh, in, or mouse, as a matter of fact, in hand. But I hit a bit of an epiphany years ago in the corporate world when I was uh, in a big meeting, uh, the annual meeting of all the creative things we had to do for this uh, this corporate entity. And during the marketing meetings, there was all the swirling and the pitches and the ups and downs and these figures. And one of the gentlemen I worked with said, are you getting this all down? Because this is your plan for the next year and you have 22 people that report to you and you've got to know, and I, I'm writing furiously uh, as I make these, these plans. And as I'm writing, I start writing, last night I dined with Frankenstein and Courier and Ives, discussing much in this and such, how paltry was our lives? And it turned into a story. And then later I published it and I recorded it. So I started writing, uh, off the cuff, which is kind of a strange little visual if you're writing off the cuff there, and uh, put together a battery of work that if you look at the comics, and the, I wrote some comics too, and the teaching, and then the writing of verse and poetry and, and little musings. I'm a storyteller, and it's hard to shut me up, as you may well know. <laughs> but that's what this all is now. So yeah, I'm working on a book. I'm ready to boot. I would have had it out by now, but I wanted to have it come out with the summer comic shows and they do not exist. No, so uh, I'm working on my, my book, love letters from the Exodus because they're letters and there's a lot of them about love and some are entertaining and some are very unsettling about the days we live in now and quite unpopular. With now you thinking the Exodus to which you refer would be what? You know, the Exodus, we talk about that old biblical vision. I see in my mind being a film guy in the Ten Commandments where right. Charlton Heston says, let's go. And off thousands of thousands of go. go. And I see life as being that kind of a, a pilgrimage where we're, you know, you and I. Hey, I see you for a while. We're hanging. Then you're hanging with somebody else or whatever. But in the big picture, no pun intended on CinemaScope, I, I see an Exodus being, bye, everybody. I'm leaving. And while it's not, it's not a retirement, because I don't do that. I'll, I'll do this for what I'm doing forever. But it's an exiting of so many things and places until I feel like there's a, a need to come back and thing and place again. Now, is that, uh, is that, because I've seen a number of people talk about, you know, like leaving social media or not, you know, getting off of Facebook and getting yeah. off of Twitter and yes. that kind of thing. Yeah. Is that part of it or is this something bigger? Are you looking at disengaging from the world as an exodus? Is like, well, I'm just not even going to pay attention to the news. I'm not going to talk to people. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm staying in my house. I'm locking the doors. I'm turning off the phone. And as long as I have electricity and a fully stocked refrigerator, just everybody leave me alone. Is it that kind of, of disengagement or is it a little bit more limited? Boy, does that sound attractive when it comes to disengagement? No, <laughs> I know, I, right? I, I'm, I'm a, a social guy and, and I really love people and I'm stung by my personality that came up through the Woodstock generation about, you know, I see people. Mm -hmm. I don't see breakdowns of identity to the nth power. I don't, I don't care. I'm going to say some very unpopular things. I don't care what color you are. And in one of my pieces I've written, I don't care how and where you be. I don't care what you, what you do. What are our common denominators that we could enjoy this pilgrimage together and not shun and not create a cancel culture to each other? What is there that we can enjoy? And I've always been... Uh, um, aggressively active in, in pursuing diversity of peoples and just hanging and doing it. I don't care age, you know, or, or political background, but it's gotten to the point now that 
with all the points you mentioned, be it social media or the news or whatever, a very well-known philosopher, and you might know him, once said, Oh, that's all I can stand. I can't stand the more. <laughs> and uh, uh, looking at the simplicity of that, I think that sometimes you just need a break. Now, for a storyteller to say goodbye, everybody, mm -hmm. forever, uh-uh. But you start looking at, at, my son used this reference last night, casting your nets on the other side of the ship and seeing how things go. So the toxicity of the news, and the news is a reflection. A lot of it is, is, is I think, made up. Uh, I should say skewed right. uh, for control. But the toxicity that I see there, the toxicity of the experts online on every disease and social function and what, you know, I, I, I kind of scoff at that, scoff, scoff. And I'm, I'm quite tired of it. So I think there's going to be times that I will decide to reinvent my pathways on the pilgrimage. And from that standpoint, keep telling stories that I want to tell. It's compulsive. I can't stop it. And I love it. But yeah, there needs to be a break. I mean, we all, uh, many of us watch news and have since before the 2016 election. And anymore, I don't. I just catch glimpses here and there and try to stay out of the muck and mire and find my own disseminations of what is really true and what not what is opinionated talking points. So, And I've written about that in the book, too. Now, how is how much is Love Letters from the Exodus different from Funny You Should Ask? Because Funny You Should Ask, is it sound, is, this sounds completely different from other stuff that you've done. It is funny. You should ask is it's got some serious musings in it, but a lot of it is very humorous. And, and because I am, I think, or was at that point and the humorous things or the little morality plays about um, the little autistic girl. And, and that was kind of sweet and humorous as was the tale about uh, dining with Frankenstein and career of the knives. Uh, uh, the new book has got some entertaining aspects to it because you can't be morose in your reflections all the time. And uh, some of this has been written in and about and in anticipation of the end of the quarantine uh, problems and the plague that we have here. Some is pretty humorous um, and, and some is dead serious. I have some samples should you be interested. And if not, we could, you know, wait till the book comes out or there's a live performance uh, with what I'm doing. Um, so this is a lot more introspective mm -hmm. and again a lot of the points in this uh, new book a lot of the writings are are going to be very unpopular with people i'm i'm if you're interested i'll share them with you in a minute but uh, we'll kind of see how that goes well now you mentioned you mentioned performing them and, re and reading them to a to an audience when you yes. do something like that now i know this stuff has not been performed yet but when you do things like uh funny you should ask and you do that what kind of response do you get from crowds, from audiences, do you get mixed feedback? Everybody likes it. People not so sure. What what kind of what kind of response do people give you? I, I get a glowing response because I only invite people I like. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, of course. I I've had some people come to me at the breaks, and one of them is a significant creative influence in the city and well known enough that I'm not going to mention her name, and she said. That's the first time I've gone to a reading and I didn't want my time back. And I actually cried during a part of one of the uh, pieces that I was doing and acting out at the same time. Um, a lot of it is, I, I think, well accepted. A lot of it might go over people's heads, but artists perform for themselves and hope that you like what you're getting. But unlike a marketing plan where I've got to touch demographics and ages and races and things and socioeconomic, I don't. I'm just telling the story. And if you can dig it, that's fine. And if not, uh, geez, we gave it a shot. I have been very fortunate to be on KKFI on ArtSpeak with some frequency. And I'm working on a 15-minute segment right now from the book called, uh, I hope to say this right, Estoy Aquí, which is Spanish for I am here. Mm -hmm. And it's about where we are in society right now. Again, I, I say the beginning, the middle, and the anticipation of the end of this pandemic thing. 
those reflections that aren't rubbing your nose in it, but just time to stop and, and back up and think and sometimes shut up. No, including myself, including myself, you know? Well, and yeah. And, and some of the people, some of the people you mentioned as far as like the arts community goes, uh, would boy, probably, boy, howdy, did you just hit it? Cause I, I've got my thoughts and I love them. I've taught them. I've been a part of it. And, and to look at me, you know me, I don't fit in with what would be considered typical in the art community mm-hmm. in any way, shape or form. But, but isn't that umbrella of diversity big enough for everybody? One would hope. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Well, and and when you go on these these uh, these shows and you're talking with other people in the arts and you have these, do you have these discussions or is your discussion strictly about the work or the arts or you know the next play that you're going to go watch or you know something like that, or do you get in into these com- we, uh, conversations about politics and the and the third rail stuff that really people shouldn't be talking about that kind of, that kind of thing does it right. does it get uncomfortable uh, we if that's done it's done judiciously and I don't care to burn bridges right. with anybody because my politics uh, again you know me are perhaps significantly significantly rather different than what people would anticipate of me. But you know the tree by the fruit it bears. And, and I, I try to be a nice um, golden rule kind of guy with everybody because I, I will not step on their opinions or try to educate them. Doesn't mean that I'm in harmony with them. I'm kind of a live and let live guy. It's more important to have the relationship with all different kinds of people, I think, than me trying to get in your face and correct you or vice versa. And in the current generation that we live in, made up of many generations, to say, if you don't believe, fill in the blank, I shun you. Mm -hmm. I don't want you around. And some of my students, younger students, have stated that. And I thought, okay, well, look what you might be missing, or I may be missing from you. Right. If we can't hang and communicate and commune and stuff, so well, and and that's it's funny. I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and we don't have the same we don't have the same political viewpoint at all. And and uh, it's it's one of those things where this you, you, we're greater than the sum of our parts, I guess. And, yeah. and I look at the landscape of things like humor. Uh, comics, video games, all that. Not not to get into all of that, but you mentioned the cancel culture earlier. And as a humorist, as somebody who looks at, well, how do I make something that's funny? How do I make something that's tongue-in-cheek or satire or parody or just going to tell a fun, just going to tell a joke? Right. How? Where does your humor find its base? All right, because there are some there are some out there who use uh, humor to criticize, to, yes. to comment on the way things are. You look at, you, especially you look at the, the work of people like George Carlin, for example, right. uh, or right. Sam Kennison, or, but other people, you know, Bill Cosby's example, he did not do the angry rant humor he was, right. you know, the the family-oriented type of stuff, you know, the situation stuff at home and, and in the neighborhoods. Where does your humor find its start? My my humor finds its start in plays on words and witticisms. And let me tell you where it doesn't find my start. I'm not going to come tell you what's wrong with you. And In my humor, in my senses of satire, I look at the big picture. I'm not here to try to be funny at your expense and stick my thumb in your eye. Mm-hmm. Now, I love Don Rickles. When I first heard him, I thought, this insulting little bigot kind of... But at the end of his performance, because he only had really one 40-minute bit, and he did it till he died, he said, look, I take swipes at everybody, but I love everybody. When we were on a ship during World War II being bombed, nobody cared if you were Gentile, Jew, at his words, white, Negro, nobody cared because we're all people. And that's what I embrace. And so I, I don't use his M.O. about uh, uh, knocking people because in today's society, somebody shoots you. And it still isn't me to do that. But I use play on words and I'll use uh, what I think are humorous 
situations and stories. And, uh, you know, I've got a piece here about quarantine cutting my hair that I wrote that I think is rather humorous and it's got some some uh, tickles out of some folks, too. Uh, uh, humor is in the eye of the beholder. You have to remember you're on their stage when you're being humorous, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And I'm there to bring us together and get a giggle. And I'm not there to alienate anybody. So, And when you get feedback that is maybe not so positive it does that does that happen with your stuff do you get people who sit there and go eh, not to my taste or, or do, yeah. do people generally oh. like what you're doing so far yeah absolutely no there's a lot of people that will do just what you did and, and it's understandable because it's like mm, you know is he kind of taking a swipe at me is he kind of not taking a swipe at anybody but if i'm making you think you the collective group mm. and they're very unsettled i, I did a a, a open mic one time and I, you know, went down there in a pair of jeans and I had a t-shirt on that said Fort Polk, Louisiana, 1972. And I wear it because I was in Fort Polk, Louisiana, 1972 in the army. And I got some looks from people that were very unsettling because that's not the uniform they wanted to see. Right. They wanted to see something of a political standpoint or something more edgy. And that's not me. And it's just a T-shirt, for God's sakes. I didn't think twice about what's, what statement it was making. Some people are anticipating and expecting uh, a, typical in, uh, in an open mic night. And I, I don't do that. No. I do a piece about whatever happened to. And I talk about things from the past that were maybe a, a, um, quizzical at the times. And where we are now, and when I do it, I do it in a voice. I do. Remember Jonathan Winters? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I remember. Remember, remember Marty Frickert? That little lady, oh, she yes. talked like this, you know. And uh, I did this. It's in the book, and I've got kind of a caricature of, of Marty Frickert holding up a, a, a Playboy magazine, and it's you know it's not bad. And the, the, the when I wrote this, the voice came to me. It's like. I try to do a, a bit from memory. Whatever happened to Playboy bunnies? Whatever happened to to reading the funnies? Whatever happened to beech nut gum? If I had a pack with me, you know I'd give you some. Whatever happened to? And it goes into being awakened in the morning and voices saying, "Hey, the school bus is here," and I'm glad you are too. And it's it's a rather touching piece, although it probably doesn't last twelve seconds, but. Uh, those kind of things fall into place where I can hopefully touch a heart, get a giggle, and and uh, you know bring a thoughtful smile to people. And I'm not out there to say, "Burn, baby, burn." You know, meet me in the streets. Huh? I'm now, not that kind of guy. Does any does any of the stuff that you're doing now draw from your time drawing comics? Yeah, you know, because I know you still you still draw, you still do commissions, yes. you still doing artwork. I, I love comics and, and I love the history of it, and uh, I'm not nuts at all about contemporary comics right now. But I have I've been fortunate and blessed to have a base of people that contact me that want illustrations, and I do commissions. I do, and I do period pieces. People like, it's like, do me a 1950s Batman collage, or do me a an Adam Strange, or you know, an old Spidey thing, or whatever. So, I get to be 13 in my mind and draw all this stuff, and and that's one of the ways that uh, I earn this very modest living. I do that. I don't see anything really that has dovetailed from comics. And I'm thinking real quick here, in the Rolodex of my mind, all those index cards and things that really lent themselves into this writing at all so there's not there's not references or anything pulled from that aspect matter of fact I've, I've made a conscious effort publicly at conventions and shows and performances to embrace the comics but not be the comic book artist i i got a piece in this book called uh, uh he's a storytelling fella and he goes from town to town and it goes on about this is what a guy does until he's done you know yeah. So that's kind of where I am with that branch on that tree of creativity. Now, uh, there's a question in the chat here, and, and this is probably going to open up a can of worms. You mentioned not really being into modern comics now. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the whole comics gate movement and, and all of the crowdfunding uh, and stuff yeah, that's going kind, on. Kinda. Yeah, kind of. 
from from the from the things that you've that you've said and the things that you've seen and and the people that you probably are still in contact with what's your impression about all of that that's going on without, without getting too deep in the weeds here because I want to I want to go back and talk about your book a little bit more but is this are we looking at growing pains in the in the comics industry right now or is this is this a necessary paradigm shift to to maybe get the comics industry back to a point where it's something worthwhile and successful and you you mentioned you know the pay uh, as a freelance artist and we're starting to see a lot of conversation now about uh, freelancers for the big two or you know all of these things not really making that much it does there I don't need think to they be ever have, Jason. I, I think, and forgive me for interrupting. No, it's fine. I remember uh, some of the guys that left that went to Image because they were under the uh, the, the uh, wondrous and protective wings of Dick Giordano, who was a great mentor to so many of us and and uh, was trying to help grow the industry professionally so you could do comics and you could have healthcare. And we're talking about the 70s and 80s. And you could have some kind of... Uh, career path to as much job security in an industry that doesn't offer you that at all. And yet I think it bothered Dick and I can't mention any names cause I'll mention the wrong ones. I forgot some of the guys that were at image were working at McDonald's in times square and you kill yourself getting extra shifts so you can make enough money to live with five or six guys and do comics in the corner of your studio. Bruce Jones did that with, uh, Bernie Wrightson and Mike Kaluta and different guys, because that's what you, what you have to do if you want to be in the business. So I don't think there's ever that much money in it. And to go back to your question, um, when it comes to comics gate and non comics gate, and I'm so thankful to be insulated from that, that I had to look it up the other day because somebody referred to it and what is comics gate again? I, I think that with respect to everybody's need to push politics and some of it needs to be pushed and and discussed and and thought about but some is to just make yourself feel noble and relevant and not uh, uh, um superior to anybody privileged i should say to anybody i'm looking at stuff like that and i'm backing off and i'm thinking comics book comic book industry you're just out of gas and you have been for a long time time we know what sales were of comics in the 60s 70s and 80s we know how they've gone from being the uh the horses that pulled the cart to now they're just kind of following the cart and what is that cart it's not licensing to that extent anymore it's movies at marvel and i'm not sure about dc how well they've done and i don't know that this isn't a big last gasp so as the business suffers people are thinking we got to save this. We got to be relevant. And how do we do this? And we get into identity politics where a good story is about adventure. It's not, it's not predicated on a formula that you will do the following things in every comic. And with that, you will become a, a leader in the creative industry again. Mm-hmm. Nah. And it happens in the TV things too. And the new Marvel movies, I, I don't think I'm interested if they're going to preach to me. I've also seen some comment uh, along the lines of, um, you know, with with the the legacy characters like Batman or Spider Man. Yeah. Uh, the the discussion is centered around well, who takes precedent. Do you promote? the character or do you promote the creator i mean scott scott snyder has a fairly good reputation right now back when uh when todd mcfarlane was doing spider-man everybody was all about mcfarlane and uh, i watched the the sci-fi uh special on mcfarlane here not too long ago and they were talking about the fact that the industry apparently and and i have not been into this so you could speak to this probably better than i can the industry tends to not want to promote the personalities. They want to promote the characters because Scott Snyder is not going to be writing Batman forever. But at the same time, if you get somebody like a Scott Snyder and a Greg Capullo team, or you get somebody like a Todd McFarlane or a a Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams team, and they have a really successful solid run and they're selling books why why not embrace that and sit there and say hey we've got denny o'neill and neil adams 
Yeah. Does it uh, seem counterintuitive to promote the character over the over the creator if you've got those creators under contract? It's because the the characters themselves are getting the pads on the chest. It's like okay, pull, boom, and they're trying to shock them back into existence. In my opinion, Siegel and Schuster never created Superman the last ninety years. Yeah, because you're run out of ideas. So when you're out of ideas and you have imaginary stories and you do this trick and that trick and think, what are we going to do? And take Batman, for instance. Julie Schwartz walks in and he says, I'll tell you what, they're going to cancel this book, so I'm taking it over. I'm bringing in Carmine Infantino. I'm bringing in my Flash team. I'm going to change the character. And when it starts to poop out within less than two years, Neil Adams steps in. So it does become uh, the creative team, I think, that you're buying. But after a while, for me, it's, it's lost its luster, number one. Number two, and this will hit you where you live. I won't spend four bucks for 15 minutes worth of, of reading. I, you know, it's great, and you thumb through it, and you think, That's, what a good story arc, but it's four bucks, which is equivalent to two lean cuisines. I can have two lunches, <laughs> and it lasts longer. Or that's, you know, how much gas can you buy? Right. And I've had people tell me, comics retailers, it's like, well, all the prices went up, and it's like, you're absolutely right. Prices are going up all the time. You're absolutely dry, right, but I have to eat. And if that becomes something I can't equate into sustainable, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's lost its luster for me. So I think it's anything now to make these characters keep on going as comics. Character, the new character team overshadows it. And, you know, I'm a marketer. That's fine by me. It's just not my cup of tea. And I don't think it can last forever. You mentioned you mentioned the Marvel stuff. DC's got the TV stuff, and IDW seems like they are in their last gasp. You know, as as much in debt as they are, does the landscape shift? Because you know, I mean, newsstand's gone. The only thing really you've got are the bookstores and the comic book shops. Is are is you know, now we've got you know DC doing the experiment with the hundred pagers in the WalMarts. You've got the the Brightweisers with Allegiance Arts going into WalMarts. Are the box stores maybe the next possible shift in trying to get comic books out into find new readers? Is that a is that a possibility that maybe maybe that's a that's going to take the place of of what newsstand used to be? You know when you walk into the to the convenience store and there's the spinner rack there next to the register. Are we going to get that again? Only now it's going to be in places like Walmart and target and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I think that the marketing for the big boxes is not going to build a fan base to where you say, I've got to be there every Wednesday for books. And I think that they are just what we used to call marketing traffic items. If you walk by and you go, hey, I'll take that, an impulse item. Until you look at the price point on that. And you think, eh, that's pretty expensive. But yeah, it, it can't hurt to have them there. But it's not a lifesaver. And, and I think no matter how you market this, the product is waning a significant amount. And there's some good stuff out there, I'm sure. It's everybody has their personal opinion. I, I, I think a lot of the product is deficient and the bang ain't worth the buck when it comes to what's going to happen in the big picture keep in mind there are people like julie schwartz that were in comics forever or stanley of course uh kurt swan was an artist for 30 some odd years or longer etc this ain't happening anymore so people rush in and i don't mean this in a bad way and they grab their gusto and the glory and they do their comics and they do a few cons and they quit they go someplace uh, on the uh, job ladders to do something else because as an industry, I personally don't see comics going on and on much longer. I don't know if you heard this, and you know more about this than me. DC has canceled subscriptions of, uh, of books, paper books, comic books, as opposed to online stuff. So are they not taking money for that anymore? I have not heard that. Uh, okay, I, do I could know, be wrong. I do know that they have stopped distributing their books through Diamond. They are they mm -hmm. are doing they're doing graphic novels and books through uh, through Penguin Random House and all of the book all of the floppies are going through uh, Lunar and what is it DCBS. <clears throat> so you know their their books are hitting the stores on Tuesdays now. 
Right. And so now there's this big, you know, well, new comic book day is Tuesday. Well, no, it's Wednesday. Well, no, it's Tuesday. No, it's, what's both days? Um, I yeah. have not heard anything about the subscriptions. But the other the other part of that, though, uh, you, to your point about, you know, they come in, they're a flash in the pan creatively, you know, they do their thing and then they move on. I've seen a lot of criticism that people are spending way too much time and effort making the comic books their auditions to write movies and TV, as opposed to writing comic books as comic books. Is there some validity to that criticism? Abs Do you see that? Or? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I taught that when I was back at the Art Institute. I said, any of you that are doing any marketing of your intellectual properties and you're going to do a comic book, and this is long before... Uh, or in the early days of print-on-demand or self-publishing. I said, what you do is you do that. That becomes your storyboards to your pilot for your characters or what have you. The creators of Ghost World were two young women that were in college, and they were at a, a Kinko's, and they're Xeroxing back and forth, uh, black and white pages for class. And a gentleman's waiting to use the, the copier, and he said, what you got? And they said, oh, this is our little homemade comic strip or whatever. And he was in intellectual properties guy. He said, you know what? Let me take a look at that. Get me a copy. I'm supposed to come back to work with X amount of things that may be marketable. And boom, boom, boom. Then Ghost Rolls out a couple of years later. The same thing with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I think these are springboards into a bigger picture. And the love and lust of just saying, I did some comics. Unless you can take that and open the doors into saying, I did an intellectual property. Now I can do this the rest of my life. Yeah. I think that's a bigger picture and much more rewarding than just doing some comics. Conversation that I had uh, a while back talks was looking at the the crowdfunding model. You know, the Indiegogo and the Kickstarter stuff, at not just comic books but web comics and and that sort of thing. And the question of the sustainability of it comes up because you've got some of these creators who are doing books and they're taking a year or two to deliver, and you've spent $20, $25, $30 for a book that you'll get eventually. Um, and, and then you've got people like Brian Polito who've been doing book after book after book after book after book right. for the last right. you know five or six years, and he's, he appears to have a, at least a, a model that's repeatable. But how do you make this work? You're talking about the intellectual property, you know, uh, all of these, all of these indie creators, and and Sean Gordon Murphy now has has got his Batman White Knight, the Murphy verse, but he's also setting up his own intellectual property, and now we hear that Scott Snyder is getting ready to go off and do some of his own stuff, and the Image guys did that. You mentioned them a lot, you know, they did it a right. long time ago. The creator-owned stuff is that going to eclipse Superman, Batman? Thor, Captain America at some point? Or you think maybe they're going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe, or it's a completely different realm of you know, it, creative? It, I know what you're saying, and it's hard to say because I think the, the uh, operative word is eclipse, and I think it already has. You know, Everybody knows Superman because he's on peanut butter T-shirts and socks and watches, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't know that anybody really gives a tinker's damn uh, that he's in a comic book, how many times it's published a month or what have you. But to open the door to these new creators who have, are going to take their work and market it smarter than the big two did at first. Stan was a pretty smart guy. But I, I think that success back in the 60s and 70s with DC, they kind of stumbled. They kind of stumbled on because I was at the DC offices in 1976, and I had created, uh, remember the visual Neil Adams had of the amazing world of Superman Park? He had a big, giant Superman, and he had booths yeah, and stuff. Yeah, I think, okay. vaguely. Okay, I took that idea, and, and I created one with some investors in town. I went back and forth to DC, 76 and 77, pitched it at the 35th anniversary Superman birthday with Siegel and Schuster. I got to meet them. It was so fun. And I had these models made at the Art Institute, this big, uh, uh, um, like a museum display, audiovisual stuff of that. And then the conversations with the licensors, who are long gone now, Saul Harrison asked Murray Alchitter, this was guy in licensing, LGA, Licensing Group of America, that was part of DC. He says, 
what are we making on a book? And I thought, you don't know what you're making on a 35 cent comic book? Because I was in the corporate world too at Sears at that point. And I was shocked at the fact that they, there wasn't an ownership of plan and knowledge of what was happening. It was just kind of happening. And uh, I, I think we're in a whole different dynamic now with today's creators going out, knowing that stuff, and at least having a business plan of what they want back in their ROI. Yeah, it's it's funny you talk about that because I've heard that mentioned from other people looking at the big two and the publishers, you know, the the actual, you know, the the traditional comics industry side of things, you know, Marvel, Marvel, DC, Image, and all that. And the comments have, have been along the lines of it feels like a, a club as opposed to a business. It, it, there there yeah. are questions that people ask on social media. It's like, well, do they even know what kind of business they're running? Do they know how to run a business? Do they know what their profit, their profit margins are or whatever? And I see, you know, I see people... Which is nothing to bark at, as a matter of yeah, fact. Too, yeah, that's a junior office dog. But, uh, but the, the question of, you know, even, even in terms of profit participation, for example, I saw one video that was talking about books, uh, individual, individual monthly issues have to sell above, I think, the $40,000 mark before the creative team starts to get a percentage. And a lot of these books are not selling... 40,000 anymore. They're selling 5,000. They're selling 1,500. They're yeah. selling, you know, 15,000. And right. to your, you know, well, like you said earlier, how long is that sustainable? You know, not, yeah. not, not, you know, you've got the, the, the indie stuff and the, and the crowdfunding and the question of how that, how long that's going to be sustainable, right. but your traditional publishing stuff. And, and it does kind of feel like the tail wagging the dog with the, with the movies and the TV becoming the thing and the comics are the, oh, by the way, and maybe that's the title. Yeah. Of, that's the title of your next book, by the way, Rick, it's, uh, oh, by the way. <laughs> I love it. That's a great title. I'm going to write that down right now. <laughs> let, let me share with you a, a good example of just exactly what you're saying. But let's go back 20 years, okay. which really wasn't that long ago. And the conversations were that Wonder Woman's losing money. Wonder Woman, the comic book, isn't. it's going to get axed. It's like, well, then why is it still being published? If it's, if it's, I can't say it's losing money, but it wasn't meeting expectations. And it would have been fine if they would have just canceled it as opposed to saying bi-monthly or four times a year or whatever. They say we can never cancel Wonder Woman because of all the licensing that's attached to it. Well, this is way after the Linda Carter TV show, way after Under Roos and all the, the licensing that was there. And you think, if the comic is what makes the licensing viable and you lose a comic, that's, that's a horrendous thing to have happen because licensing feeds more people than comics. And now you think, what if you cancel the book? Can't Wonder Woman sustain herself on movies and Super Friends and all the licensing? Can't we do the same thing with Superman and Batman? Does there have to be a book? Because I don't know, mm -hmm. from my vantage point, that, the, that these are good books. I really don't. And I, I would rather see, personally, DC just fold it up and maybe have a few new books if people are really buying them, and then quarterly print the best of the 60s or the best of the 70s or 80s and then if there's a graphic novel print it all at once and make it something that isn't that, that's cost efficient for the consumer and i hate to see these characters dying on the vine as i think in many cases they are right now yeah and and you mentioned underoos by the way i ran across and mentioned this morning that apparently it is national underwear day so <laughs> that's a thing yep yep you know, I did have a thought. I know, I know we're, we're getting close to time on this, but if I could share this with you. Sure. I was doing a convention in Omaha, and this is when Todd McFarlane got the Spider-Man book. And I've always liked Todd. I never was nuts about his style, but we all have different styles. Okay. And he had that new Spidey that just came out that had the big spidery Spider-Man all crouched down right, and stuff right. on I that one. That okay. cover. Yeah. yeah, I don't know numbers and covers and issues and stuff like that. But I'm drawn away... And there's the new comics table across. So I just taken a break and I'm walking around talking to people in Omaha and stuff. And I grabbed that and I probably paid what 35 cents for it as was probably the cost at that point. I, I don't remember. 
and I had it at the table and people were talking to me about Spidey. And I think I had done a Spidey already and about Stan and Ditko and Ramita. And I stood up in conversation, which I tend to do sometimes. And I took the cover, you know, I looked at it and I thought, this is pretty good stuff. Okay, I'll have to read this later. And I instinctively folded it in half and stuck it in my jeans pocket in the back. And people lost their poo. It's like, <laughs> my God. And it wasn't because it was Spidey. It was because it was McFarland. McFarland. How can you take a McFarland? How can you fold the cover? It's like, my God, people, I, I don't mean anything by it. I'll take it out and s smooth it. But it's it's just a comic book. And to me, it's not a collectible. And I, I, I apologize to McFarland, who's ever out there someplace. But, you know, we, we've made the, the, the creators often much more important than the characters. I think we've lost the characters in that toe. But does that does that not present an opportunity to market the book though? If you have a popular creator, like yes, McFarlane? it does. Yes, it does, and I'm and I'm glad to see that people were buying it for whatever reason. So yeah, I'm not making a judgment on their purchasing. I'm just saying, for me, I I don't make him the most hallowed of creators on this one book. If you do buy three or four copies, that's fine. I'm looking more for my old friend Peter Parker. And, and let's see what Spidey's doing. Because I don't believe the characters are sustainable for 90 years without shifting to some other comic skate or identity marketing or character, excuse me, creator-driven books. But those aren't sustainable forever either. Well, okay, so your creator-driven book is Love Letters from the Exodus. Do you have an excerpt you want to share with us before we before Yeah, we can out? I do one? For, I, I have one I'd like to do. It's, yeah. it's very brief. Uh, and then I had some of their very long. I've got one here I wrote, and uh, of course during the the pandemic. And this is called "I Quarantine Cut My Hair." I quarantine cut my hair a little off the top with some left to spare. I wore a homemade cape over my underwear because I quarantine cut my hair. Now I don't know what got into me. My hair was so shaggy I just couldn't see. So I watched Floyd the Barber. He's from Mayberry on MeTV, and I hope you don't mind that I share that I. I quarantine cut my hair. I used kitchen scissors and a knife. I brought some talcum powder for my wife, and I had the best time in my whole damn life. When you thought I had in a prayer, I quarantine cut my hair. Not like it was planned. I'll tell you firsthand. There's one thing I must confess, sir. I look like a nutty professor. <laughs> so we'll throw a Jerry Lewis voice in there at the end, too. And if you have a moment, I don't know that you do. Sure. I have a more serious one. If I may share that with you. Yeah, we got a couple of minutes. Go ahead. Okay. This is called Red Meat. And this is this is more reflective of a handful of this stuff. Okay. Now, Red let, meat let me, the Democrat. Let me, let, me throw, let me throw a trigger warning out here. Because yes. some people will not like this. <laughs> so. No, no. And I know that. That's yeah. okay. Yeah, that, okay. Yeah. Sorry. And, yeah. and, and when you get to the end, you'll see who doesn't like this. Quite, quite a big handful. <laughs> Red meat for the Democrats. Red meat for the press. Red meat for the GOP on Monica Lewinsky's dress. Red meat, LGBTQ, here's some for me, here's some for you. Red meat is such savage bait, because America runs on hate. Red meat, all the folks at church, and there's more that I'm sure you'd besmirch. Red meat, the secular humanists who shake their fists at God. Red meat is such a savage bait, doesn't that seem odd? Because it's hate. We tear at it like raging wolves, we chew our own paws off to get more red meat every day while we spit up blood and cough. Red meat, red meat, we can't wait. America runs on hate. Own it. And if you don't think so, fight me. See? Red meat, everything you do on all the cable news. Red meat for the Gentiles and save some for the Jews. Red meat for the fully woke. Red meat, red meat till you choke. Red meat for the Ku Klux Klan. Red meat for Black Lives Matter. Red meat, baby, that's the plan across the land from sea to sea. And I, I just can't stand this red meat. We just took care of that, sorry. Uh, I think it's too damn late because destruction is our fate. Red meat for Sean Hannity, disavow your sanity and sacrifice humanity. Let me check the date. Looks to me it's plain to see that America, the shining city on the hill, still runs on hate. And I was very thoughtful about this part, Jason. Red meat, my art community, so noble in its cause, preach such hypocrisy, their red meat strikes like jaws. I wish I could share a message of love, but try as I might, there's none in sight unless we look up above my pay grade. 
So there you had it. Right. And everybody's involved, I think, in that too. I think I think it hits uh, pretty much everybody, yeah. The website is rickstacy.com. It's S-T-A-S-I. Thank you. The book is Love Letters from the Exodus. And when do we expect that to be out and uh, people can get to it? Watch, watch the website or uh, watch Facebook because, again, I wanted to christen that when it came to the, the shows. But I might not wait because it's really just about ready. And uh, But in the meantime, if anybody is looking for Funny You Should Ask, I've got copies of that too. Or I've got my double album I, I did, which has a handful of Funny You Should Ask uh, recorded. And this is called Talking to Myself to You. Lots of new stuff on here. Lots of musical songs that I wrote that you can find on YouTube too. And guest voices on here like Kathy Garver from Family Affair, if you recall her. Mm-hmm. She's also uh, the voice of Firestar in the Spider-Man Saturday morning cartoons. And Bruce Jones is in here. April Campbell Jones is here. Uh, Julia Jackson and a lot of other very, very talented people that helped me put together, I call it my own little white album, but uh, my double album, Talking to Myself to You. So there's all my plugs. All right. And uh, Holly, uh, as far as Star Wars underwear, did they make Star Wars underoos? I don't remember. I'm sorry. You know, I lost you on part of that. I apologize. Uh, Holly, Holly in the chat was talking about National Underwear Day, wishing they'd made Star Wars underwear for women. I think they did do, didn't they do Star Wars underoos at one point? Very, 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 very long time ago. I, I think so. I don't remember. I think so. And, and speaking of action figures, I've got some originals. Oh, so I like just that. To, just to address the some, large, oh some people in the chat. I, I have <laughs> hey, a check, check this out. I'll show you this. This is my Carmine Infantino Batman, which is arguably my most favorite pen holder. Now, hold that up just a little bit more. We'll see that. A little higher here? A little higher. I can't see myself. We're not a split screen, so. Infantino was... was That's fun stuff. All right. So, Rick Stacy is the name, and rickstacy.com is the website. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. I much appreciate it. And I'm available for readings and stuff and socially distant. And I hope to see you again soon, sir. All right. We will do that. And a little bit of housekeeping here. If any of you are interested in stuff, you can save 10% when you go to superherostuff.com. Use the promo code sci-fi for me, 10. And uh, we will do this all again tomorrow because we have as our guest... Um, see here that screen right there. Travis Hansen will be here. He is uh, he is an artist with uh, an online comic called Life of the Party, and he's got a number of other things. We'll be talking to him tomorrow at noon. And we do thank everybody for being in the chat and uh, being here. If you are new to the channel, we do uh, invite you to subscribe, hit the notification bell, so uh, and set that to all. So. YouTube will send you something, and uh, we will do this all again tomorrow. Everybody be safe. Wash your hands. We'll be back later. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.